So if you have a Bible, turn with me if you would, because we're going to spend some time today looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at the first five verses. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for this day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? So the question that Paul is now addressing in his second letter to those uh, individuals in Thessalonica, and for those of you in the worship service, we got 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, today we get 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, was that they were now being swayed, apparently by, many people believe it might have been a false letter. Anyway, this false teaching was that the day of the Lord had already come. And so this one, as we mentioned last week, is written in a series of kind of Hebrew poetry couplets. But nevertheless, they wondered if they were already in the tribulation and to use a common phrase, if they had been left behind. Uh, You remember the book series, Left Behind. And I remember Suzanne told me years ago that when she was in summer school in college one time, she was with all sorts of people and the bed was open like somebody was going to get in and she could not find anybody in the house. And she began to to think that maybe she was left behind. I'll let her tell you the whole story. And I'm sure there will be those kinds of experiences. And maybe you've had one of those where all of a sudden everybody's gone. And whether it was a prank or intentional or accidental, you have the situation that you have now in Thessalonica. They're now convinced that the day of the Lord has come. And they're sitting there and wondering what happened. And so, of course, he tells them, first of all, don't be deceived. There's pretty good reason to believe, as we'll see next week when we get together, that there may have been a forged letter, which is why Paul, as we talked about at the end of First Thessalonians chapter, First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, but at the very end, he actually writes part of it in his hand so that he could show them that this was not forged. But I thought it was interesting because he put it in that handwriting, they still saw this false letter. And I think the implication today is maybe we don't have false letters, but we certainly have false teaching on the Internet. Again, just a a spoiler alert, don't believe everything you read on the Internet, okay? And this is the same kind of situation where uh, these individuals were young Christians, maybe not discerning. And so as I posted here, Satan is always trying to attack us in different ways. But one of those is through false teaching. And we seem to be awash in false teaching today. So it's probably more important than ever to actually focus on that. And most of these false teachings as we've talked about before in this class, deny Christ is the way of salvation. And I put down Second Peter 2, um, in this case, denying that Jesus was sufficient and they think that Jesus came and they've been left behind. So that's the premise here. And so, first of all, he taught that there are two good reasons why you shouldn't believe that. 
And every once in a while, I've heard on radio an individual arguing that we're in the midst of the tribulation. And as bad as things are, I don't think that's the case. But there's some good reasons, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, for not believing we're in the tribulation. Why? Because, number one, there's no rebellion. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. And the second is the revealing of the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. I'll talk more about that as well. And neither of these events happen. And his argument in verse 5 is, you should have known this. Again, as um, Neil reminded us of something I've talked about before, Paul was only there for three weeks. He only really actually had a chance to preach three times. But obviously, he communicated enough that he expected them to not be dissuaded or deceived by this. So it illustrates again how important second coming prophecy was in terms of the gospel message that Paul left with those individuals. So that's the case. But again, the point he's making is is that they need to test the spirits and they need to, if anything, recognize that um, this was a false teacher and they should not be deceived. Now, this word rebellion... Interesting, it is really the word from which we get the word apostasy. So it's more than just a moral rebellion. Have we seen a moral rebellion in our world? Of course we have. But it's the idea of a complete and whole-scale rejection of the gospel. And we've seen people reject the gospel in the past, but it's a complete turning away here. And if this is referring to those, not those who maybe just called themselves Christians, but people that really were Christians. And even warns them that in these very last days, there would be deceitful spirits and teachings. Matter of fact, for those of you taking notes, you might put down 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, because one of the signs of the last day is a lot of deceitful spirits and false teachings. And that's why a lot of people say, well, we're a whole lot closer than we were before uh, because of that. And then also you see that not only does Paul warn them, but then you see Peter warns them in 2 Peter 3, and then Jude warns them in Jude 17 and 19. So you can see that this is another very significant indicator of being in the last times. And then, of course, you will even have the teaching of Jesus himself about apostasy, but also this also also now focuses on not only do we have this apostasy or this rebellion, but we also have this man of lawlessness. Now that's actually a Semitic idiom that was used at the time to refer to someone who was opposed to God's reign. In just a few minutes when I do one of our Ask Kirby sections, I'll go into that in more detail. But it is the individual that it tells us here actually sets himself up um, with an individual that goes into the temple of God, takes the seat in the temple of God. And again, for those of you that maybe would like to study this a little bit more this week in your quiet time, I take you back to, first of all, Matthew 24, where Jesus is indicating that this would be what's called the abomination of desolation. I'll explain a little more about that in just a minute, but it's where, again, the Antichrist actually sits in the temple and declares himself to be God. And that harkens all the way back to Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. So I put a lot of those up there so that if you'd like to study it, because I know some of you are very interested in second coming prophecy, lots of people speaking about that right now. Those are some of those key verses that you might want to look up and use as a cross-reference to what Paul is now teaching here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.
But let me get into that in a little more detail. What is this abomination of desolation? That is what Jesus teaches, and it's this idea of this idolatrous image that is set up of the Antichrist. Now, some people say, well, is the law, the man of lawlessness, the man of destruction, the Antichrist, the beast, who are they? They're all the same. And we'll go into that in a little more detail in just a minute. He's called the beast in the book of Revelation. He's called the Antichrist in 1 John. And here he's called the man of lawlessness. But in each case, we're talking about a time in the future when this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, this man of desolation, the beast, will actually set himself up for worship. And this is what Jesus refers to as the abomination, the great sin, and the desolation of something that now desecrates the temple. As you're listening here, you're thinking, okay, there's no temple in Jerusalem. Not at the moment. But if you've ever traveled uh, with Pastor Graham or other individuals to Israel, you know that there are individuals that have put together all the elements for the temple, and they are ready to go. As they say in the south, they're fixing to build that temple. And so it is something that could exist in the future, and that is the place where indeed the Antichrist will step. Um, I know I spend a lot of time on the first five verses, but there's a lot more there, and we'll go through the rest of it a little quicker. Because again, this idea of worshiping a false god or idol is by definition an abomination that desecrates the temple. And if you understand that, go back to the ancient Near East. Even if you had just an image or an idol of a king, that was the same thing as worshiping that king or idol. So in that case, we're talking about maybe an idol or an image of the Antichrist, possibly he himself comes into the temple but either way it is the idea that now they are no longer worshiping God they are worshiping the Antichrist and again that's why most of us uh, certainly hope that our teaching is correct about the pre-tribulation rapture because you don't want to be around when it's time for Jesus to come and make it very clear who really is God and it's not the Antichrist but he will set himself up and demand worship from the people Have we seen that before? That's why that reference to Daniel is so good, because remember Nebuchadnezzar. And so you see the same kinds of ideas being expressed there. Well, I could spend all day just on those first five chapter, first five verses of the chapter, but we have more to cover. So let's go back to uh, chapter 2, now verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And now the focus is on this idea of how is it that this lawless man is brought into power and it's the idea of the mystery of lawlessness that is at work but still is somewhat restrained. 
he said that they knew why the lawless one was restrained. Except he doesn't really tell us there. So let me suggest one possibility, probably the likely one. And that is, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer of sin. Does that make sense? And so as bad as the world is now, imagine when you take the Holy Spirit out of the world, which has been restraining sin. Well, how would the Holy Spirit be taken out of the world? Where does the Holy Spirit live right now? In the believers. So, again, for those of us that believe in a rapture before the tribulation, which I think is the logical way to think about this, when we are gone, there's no more Christians and there's no more Holy Spirit. If you thought it was bad now, just imagine how bad it gets then. And that's, I think, at least one possible explanation for that. He also gives us a clue as to why God is not allowing the earth, uh, the end to come. Why didn't the return happen in the first century or in the sixth century or the 20th century? Why are we now in the 21st century? And Peter gives us an indication of that, that it's not like our time. We many times might say, well, God is certainly taking his time. But Peter reminds us that for what looks like us is a long time for God is just an instant. Remember a thousand days is like one day, one day is like a thousand. And again, the implication in Second Peter, as he is writing to other persecuted Christians is, is that God is allowing even this fallen world to exist, to allow more and more people to repent and return to him, which we'll get to in just a minute when we answer one of the Ask Kirby questions, which is why I put it in there today. And ultimately, though, this man of lawlessness will be revealed in his time. When he is revealed, uh, he will be allowed to reign for a time, three and a half years. We get that not only here, but also we see that in Daniel and other passages. The book of Revelation seems to indicate that as well. But eventually Jesus is coming back. And I thought it was kind of interesting because it says he will destroy them with the breath of his mouth. If you go back and look at the book of Revelation, it talks about the fact that Jesus is seen with this double-edged sword coming from his mouth. You see that in the first chapter. You see it again in chapter 19 when the judgment takes place. And so I made a correlation that maybe that's also the idea that in Hebrews chapter 4 it refers to what? God's word as a double-edged sword. But here, the battle is over instantaneously. Jesus shows up, and um, he takes control, and that is the end of the reign of Satan on this earth. And so we see that as well. Well, along with also the lawless men and Satan... Also, the wicked, and of course, as I pointed out last week, if you're new to the class, don't think that we always talk about hellfire and judgment every week, but this is the passage we're in right now. And it's a reminder that God actually will eventually judge those who take pleasure in unrighteousness. They've been deceived by the lawless one who did have supernatural powers, but these were fake signs and wonders. These were the power of Satan, not of God. Do we see that? 
when we think of that in Exodus. Remember where Pharaoh's magicians had some power, but then, of course, Moses had even more. And so, again, we can see the impact that this will have on the unbelievers. And if nothing else, as we shared last week, this should really motivate us to want to share the gospel with as many people as possible. There is a sense of urgency that Paul gives to those in Thessalonica and ultimately even to us today to recognize we are in those last days and the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And if it was true in the first century, it's very true in the 21st century. He's in work in every generation to lead people astray. But ultimately, I want to put this passage in there, First Timothy 2, the ultimate goal is God wants you to be saved. And he wants those that you have a chance to witness to by bringing them to the gift of Christmas or inviting them into your home. He is desiring that those individuals would be saved. And he commands us to go to all nations. I put down, of course, the Great Commission. We'll come back to that later once we talk about the unreached people groups. And when the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world, the end will come, which, of course, is our Ask Kirby question today. And that is, if nothing else, the importance of preaching the gospel. And we don't expect that everybody's going to accept that. We have, in a sense, a desire to preach the gospel. But we recognize that some people will love the darkness rather than the light. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to actually bring the gospel to everyone. Last couple verses we see starting in verse 13, in which Paul now says... But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit in belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God our Father who loved us and gave us an eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That would be a good way to end the book, but it turns out that next week we will cover some more. But here again, we see the emphasis in the midst of this false teaching. What does Paul teach? That we... First of all, need to stand firm. And here's that word thanksgiving that we had Neil talk about here. Because uh, once he's now corrected the false teaching, he brings them back to this issue of thanksgiving. He repeated that it was the apostles' duty to give thanks for them. And he gave thanks to them for their faith and love. Here he also thanks God that he chose them as what? The first fruits. If you go back to the Old Testament, you were to give the first fruits of your labor. We even use this concept today. The first amount that God has given to you, we give to the church. And so they were the first fruits, but they were the first fruits in another sense. They were the first generation of believers. Yes, Paul had left a few believers in Philippi, but essentially these were the first fruits of those in Europe who ultimately brought the gospel to even us today. And they were the first fruits, um, and yet they were already wondering if they were the last generation. But instead, they were really the first generation. And by contrast, what we see here is that they are pointing out that you want to not believe in the unrighteousness 
or the lies of the Antichrist. Instead, you want to be marked by sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Uh, He also reminds them that they are going to experience the glory of Christ. They would be glorified Him at the second coming. And ultimately, he tells them to what? To stand firm. And this idea of stand firm, I think, is something that he was passing on to them in their day. It's something we should apply in our day. Because we should recognize that every time that we step out of this church and go into the world, we're engaged in what could be a spiritual battle for the day, a battle between forces of good and evil. And this is something that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. So just as Paul admonished them in Ephesians and Ephesus, now he also admonishes those Thessalonica, uh, the Thessalonians, to stand firm when he talked about spiritual warfare. So I think, first of all, we should not accept any kind of false teaching that we might hear, see, or read. And second of all, we need to stand firm in the midst of what we might encounter day to day. And if we do that, we should diligently share the gospel with others. And since it's Mission Month, also support world missions. So those are some of my application points. But let's, if I can, very quickly, before we run out of time, talk about the two Ask Kirby questions. One of those was, okay, you've got the beast in Revelation, you've got the Antichrist in First John, we've got, of course, even here today, we've got uh, the uh, lawless and destruction and the man of lawlessness, the man of destruction. Who are all these people? And my answer, which I've already sort of tipped my hand on, is they're all the same. Here's a good diagram to help you understand that. In Second Thessalonians 2.3, we see the phrase son of lawlessness and son of destruction. Then in chapter 2, verse 8, he's referred to the lawless one. But even though those are three different names, I think all of us would agree that's the same person, right? So then you might say, well, okay, that makes sense. But then in 1 John, he's called the Antichrist. And in then Revelation, he's called the Beast. And then we even have a number for him, which is 666. Well, I think the argument that you could make very easily, though I recognize there are some Christians that try to say that the beast and the Antichrist are different, I think these are just different names for the same person. Do we have any examples of that in Scripture? Satan himself, right? He's called the prince of the power of the air. Uh, He is called the evil one. We see different names for Satan, but we all recognize there's one Satan. So I think when we see different names for the Antichrist, most likely that would be different names for the same person. Does that make sense? That's kind of the way most people would accept that. I recognize that not every believer holds to that. But what about the 666? Where does that come from? You know, I've had some people say, well, 666, that just shows that the Antichrist was John Fitzgerald Kennedy, because he's got six letters in each one of his names. Or um, just the other day, Suzanne and I were talking about uh, Henry Kissinger. He just had a new book come out. And um, Suzanne said, I thought he was dead. And I said, no, he's 98, but he's still writing books. Anyway, you know, so everybody's had, you know, this person, that person, Barack Obama. Barack Hussein Obama, I think that's 666. So everybody's got everybody's a different one. What's 666 all about? Well, if you go back to the book of Revelation, the numbers are symbolic. 
And we know that. For example, the number two is used throughout Scripture as the number of witnesses. Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, and you have the two witnesses in the tribulation in Revelation 11. Three, well, that's the divine number. You have everything from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all sorts of others. Matter of fact, if you see anything said three times, think of the book of Isaiah. When um, here he is in the presence of God, what does he say? Holy, holy, holy. So three is sort of the divine number. Four, of course, is the number of earth. You have the four corners of the earth. You have the beast has four living creatures around the throne. This is the number of the earth. Six is the number of man. And the mark of the beast is what? Six, six, six. What that is, is the number of man is six repeated three times, which is the God number. Basically, that is what? Man pretending to be God. I think that's the logical implication of that. Seven is the perfect number. We can go on, but you can see that each one of those numbers are important. So my argument would be whether it's 666, the beast, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of destruction, that's all the same individual. And we don't want to be around when he takes power. Let's get to the other question, though, because the question was, okay, the um, Mark 13, or we can look at Matthew uh, 24. We can look at, of course, even the implication here in Second Thessalonians. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. What about the North Sentinel Island where the Sentinelese will not allow anyone to come onto the island? First of all, you might say, what are these? Well, you might remember a number of years ago, this one very wrong-headed Christian decided he would go to that island and try to share the gospel, and he didn't live very long. And if you're not familiar, uh, where is that located? Well, that is located off of India. Assume I can show that on the screen. I guess I can't, but you can see the red there. And so this is a very isolated area. The Indian government has simply said, we just will stay off of that island, because if you go to that island, this is what in, you encounter. And so it has been a very difficult opportunity to actually reach those individuals. So that raises a question, because when actually Jesus commanded his followers to make disciples of all nations, um, he used the Greek words ta ethne. And that is the case. And probably the best way to translate that would be ethnic groups. So if you say, has the gospel been taught in every nation? Yes, I mean, even in North Korea and China and Albania, somebody has heard the gospel there. But if you believe that what Jesus is saying to all people groups, that's a little different. We're going to show a video. Hopefully that's going to work. And we're going to, first of all, talk about that when you look at all the people groups in the world, there are about 7,000 people groups that are unreached. Some of whom are here in the United States, I might mention, but also many of them are in what's oftentimes referred to as the 1040 window. But of those, many of them have some Christian presence, but not much. But some of them are what would be considered unengaged people groups. So about 3,000 of that 7,000 are the case. But let me, if I can, use this video to see if we can kind of teach a little bit more about what it means for the whole world to hear the gospel of Jesus. What is a UPG? UPG stands for Unreached People Group. 
But to understand what that means, we need to first talk about people groups. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning all ethnic groups or people groups. So what is the people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word, but ethnically Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations or people groups within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. 95% of all unreached people groups are located in the part of the world between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude, stretching from North Africa to Southeast Asia. We call this the 1040 window. It's in the 1040 window that most of the major non-Christian religions hold sway. Collectively, they are known as the Thumb People, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, including many Chinese, Muslim, and Buddhist. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to Ta Ethne, all people groups, and then the end would come. Less than 3% of our total cross-cultural missionary force is working with unreached people groups. We must go to the unreached. At the same time, it's estimated that over 350 unreached people groups are living in the United States today as immigrants, refugees, and international students. We must welcome the unreached. Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is alive. His mission for us is clear, yet the task stands incomplete. Together, we can change that. So that is our challenge, and as we're talking about missions this month, I thought it would be good to maybe give you some encouragement to, first of all, say that over the last 50 years, many of these mission groups, and I've had a chance to interview them on my radio program, have been making very significant progress in reaching out to these unreached people groups. You might say, okay, when I give to missions here at um, Prestonwood, where does that money go? Well, I'll just use one example because I know one particular couple. They're in India. They're not officially missionaries, and who knows, they might get kicked out because if you look at the list of the most of uh, the countries that persecute Christians the most, North Korea is at the top, but tenth is India. But they're there right now, theoretically, as not missionaries, but what are they doing? They're going and reaching unreached people groups, which are up there closer to where the border is between India and um, 
Tibet and that area. There are other missionaries that might just simply say, you know, if we want to reach the Centralese, okay, we, may, we can't get on that island, but maybe we can do something else. We can have boats where we actually have loudspeakers that preach the gospel in their language. Or maybe we can drop some radios that uh, when they pick them up, it activates them and it tells them the gospel in their language. There are all sorts of creative things that people are thinking about. How do we reach to some of those groups? But what is so interesting is, is that if you look at a lot of these different Bible translation organizations, like Wycliffe, for example, here, Wycliffe Associates and others, as well as church planning groups like East-West Ministries, E3 Ministries, some of them, they've all felt that they have could have a tremendous amount of success in this decade. Some of them are saying that we will actually reach some very critical mass by, they even think by 20 25, but certainly by the end of this decade. And because of this technology, this might give us a chance to actually translate the Bible faster than ever before with these fast computer programs they're putting on laptops. They might be able to transcend some of the geography, the governments, and even, of course, the superstition there. So if nothing else, we should pray for the Lord of the harvest because there is a real need for missions in this 21st century. And uh, we are a nation that um, actually has been very successful in reaching people with the gospel. But again, I bring back to the point, we have have unreached people groups right here. You might say, well, I can't be a missionary to go to, uh, for example, some of the places in Bhutan and Tibet, uh, some of the places in Irian Jaya. We don't have to go very far. We have an outreach right now in the Bonton community. Or let me use a different illustration. One of the churches that has supported us over the years is Northwest Bible Church. They have an outreach in Vickery Meadow. And I remember the last time we did an event at Vickery Meadow, I was in their community center. And I'm hearing the languages of the world. I mean, these are all sorts of immigrants that have come here, and uh, we don't have to go to reach unreached people groups. We have unreached people groups just east of 75, just south of LBJ Freeway and north of Northwest Highway, right there, right there in Vickery Meadow. I mean, we have unreached people groups in our own community. So there's an opportunity for us to fulfill the Great Commission. So I recognize that uh, there is still more work to be done, but I'm very encouraged that so many of these groups that are church plants planning groups, Bible uh, teaching groups, Bible translators, and other uh, missionaries are making a very significant difference. And if nothing else, we should pray that indeed the Great Commission would be fulfilled.